Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. A lot of the plants that I work on are considered to be magical plants or plants that have a history in kind of witchcraft. And I really like witchy plants. I like plants that have this history of mysticism tied to them because that's usually a plant that has really interesting chemistry. So I think what we do in my research group that's really unique and and kind of helps to build on, you know, uh, gratitude for herbs is really putting the science behind that. That's Cassandra Quave. A childhood illness robbed her of a leg. But that hasn't stopped her from trekking through jungles, swamps, and mountains in search of medicinal plants. In her book, The Plant Hunter, she's written a delightful, story-filled account of her adventures. The book also spells out her hope that her research may lead to new ways to counter the rising threat of superbugs that are resistant to existing medications. This is great to be talking with you because your book was so much fun to read. Fun and informative. I learned things. And you drew me into your stories, especially the the origin story of you yourself. You had a hard time as a kid. Has that really been the basis of your work, you think? Being born with multiple skeletal abnormalities definitely has led to challenges, not only in childhood, but, you know, ongoing. But Within my work, I get out into the woods and go to places that most average people never go. So I think in some ways I've overcome some of those challenges with a bit of creative thinking um, and often the help of maybe a horse or a donkey. (laughs) But um, yes, it's definitely informed my work. You know, I almost died of a really serious infection as a child. And I've put a lot of my research efforts towards trying to find solutions for these types of infections. How old were you when they had to amputate part of your leg? So I was three years old. Do you remember that moment when they told you? I definitely recall the moment they tried to put me into a large swirling bath of what looked like blood to me at the time, but it was actually betadine <laughs> to treat the the infection of my leg after the amputation. Um, and so th- there was flashes of memories that were definitely very impactful. I remember reading in the book, that you volunteered 
at the hospital emergency room. And you had already spent so much of your time in the hospital as a patient. I would imagine that I'd want to get away from the hospital as fast <laughs> as possible. But you were drawn to it. What, why was that? You know, it's it's funny to think about it this way, but the hospital was like a second home for me because I had one to two surgeries a year. And so I was always in and out and I understood the rhythms of the hospital. And so, yeah, when I when I was older, I was also very much driven to become a, a physician someday. And so I was fascinated with all these procedures and I felt very at home and wanted to give comfort that I could, you know, as a teenager, just bringing people blankets and ice and checking on them and making sure things were going smooth in the area. But I, I spent a lot of time there. Like it was basically like a part-time job, just unpaid um, throughout high school. How did you get into this very interesting path for your life of finding plants from which we can draw new medications? So I was always fascinated with nature growing up in a rural you know, rural town in South Florida, I spent a lot of my time outdoors. So often on crutches because of those recurring surgeries, but I would climb trees with one leg and sit up in the branches <laughs> wow. and, you know, look at ants and, and creatures. And I would make potions with my friends, you know, which were basically like all kinds of weird plants and moss we'd gather and grind up and play doctor. Um, it's a yeah. good thing it didn't kill yourself. <laughs> I know, right? It's like, it's good. I, my mom taught me a few tricks um, about plants as medicine. The most basic was, you know, that you could use aloe to treat burn wounds. And I did that once. I, tr I self-treated a burn wound I had because I'd done something very naughty. I'd driven a four-wheeler um, up a hill of dirt and had rolled it and burned my leg. And so to hide it from my mom, I treated myself because <laughs> I didn't want to get in trouble for going where I wasn't supposed to go with the four-wheeler. <laughs> so you had an early experience of using plants medically. Exactly, exactly. You know, and then in college, I was, I was very much a pre-med, taking all the biology and chemistry classes, but I also started to really fall in love with the field of anthropology. And what I learned in those classes was really that medicine isn't so two-dimensional. I mean, I'd really thought of medicine as being pharmacy and surgery, and I was starting to learn through these other classes that um, people in different parts of the world and different cultures look at medicine, they look at disability, they look at illness, they look at health it, through very different lenses. And that's really kind of what got me started down that path. And then lastly, it was really a trip to the Amazon that, that really pulled me in. You went there by yourself? Does that, do I remember that correctly? Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy now. I mean, I'm a mom with, with you know, older teens, and I can't imagine one of them saying, hey, I'm taking off to the Amazon. I'll see you on the other side, you know. <laughs> and you went to a place, you can't, you can't reach this place except by boat or a canoe or something. Yeah, yeah. It was out of contact. There were no cell phones. There was no email, no internet or anything. Yeah, I was just off in the jungle for six weeks at a research camp, and um it was amazing. It was really a life-changing experience, um, you know, that led me to really pursue the field I'm in today. Is that where you met Don Antonio, the, the medicine man? It is. Yes, absolutely. So Don Antonio was a gardener that took care of this um, kind of teaching at research garden and also garden that tourists would come and see at this research camp. Um, but he was also a healer and he treated patients from all around the region. And so 
he really took me under his wing and started teaching me a lot about how these plants are used as medicine and really got me thinking about some of these other layers of complexity to medical treatment. And it got me thinking about where some of our medicines actually come from. As I remember, I was really struck by how your disability and your search for medication for in, through plants came together with this medicine man, Don Antonio, because what was happening to your leg? He noticed that you were in pain when you were walking. Did he notice it more than you did? Or were you so accustomed to it that he just took it in stride or what? He just noticed that I was not myself and not myself in the sense of the way I was walking, but also the way I was just feeling and behaving. And he um, offered to perform a healing ceremony, which basically involved um, singing and a use of something called a shikapa bundle, which is a, a bunch of leaves that sounds like little rustling sounds. Um, it's very rhythmic, very soothing, and a, a bath of this local mint that's just kind of poured over your body. And so this was my first experience with having this form of healing. This was not surgery. This was not pharmacy. <laughs> um, it was it was just another another approach to to therapy. And I did feel better after. And that was, yeah, just, it was an amazing experience I was really fortunate to have with him. Is consulting with people with knowledge that's been passed on through generations, is that how you find plants that might be candidates for new medications? Absolutely. So if you think about it this way, we have, you know, around 374,000 species of plants on earth. That's a lot. <laughs> and over 34,000 of those are used by people as medicine. So when you're thinking about which plants to focus on as a scientist, to me, it makes the most logical sense to start with those plants that people are already using and have been using for generations to treat different ailments. And so as an ethnobotanist, I try to learn about the relationships that people have with plants and then try to use those clues um, to direct the research we do in the lab so that we can investigate the right species for potential medical properties. What do you do when you identify a plant that's reputed to have beneficial effects? How do you test that in the lab? How do you make sure it's effective and how do you make sure it's safe? Because there are plenty of plants that have an effect on us that we don't necessarily want. Yeah, that's, that's a really great point. First of all, not everything that's natural is safe. Um, really, the discovery process starts early with making arrangements with both communities and governments that are involved in the project. So after we've set that up, Part of the process is interviewing people, interviewing healers, interviewing knowledge holders about their uses of plants. We collect those plants in the wild. We press them into newspaper. And Alan, you may have done this um, many years ago in school. If you've ever pressed flowers between newspaper um, as part of your science class, but we do this just on a, on a larger scale, pressing hundreds and hundreds of specimens um, when we're out in the field. We also collect basically like a grocery bag full of whatever is the active part of the plant. So it may be a leaf, it may be um, it may be the flowers, the fruit, and those are dried. And then they're eventually brought back to the lab where we then pull out the chemistry. So once we have that extract, that liquid extract, we dry it down using tools like a freeze dryer. So you have kind of this crystalline mixture and there are hundreds of different molecules present at that stage. 
So we take that mixture and we test it in our other lab um, against different, you know, what the public may know as superbugs. So these are bacteria that are multiply drug-resistant against many different antibiotics. We also test against fungal infections. So we test against an array of these different pathogenic agents. And when we have a hit, when we find that an extract works against one or more of these, we then go back to our chemistry lab because, again, we're working with big mixtures. So a good analogy for this is basically a haystack. And we're looking for the few straws of hay within that haystack that represent the active chemicals responsible for that activity that we see in the lab. Maybe I misunderstood in the book, but there seems to be a great value in the stuff you extract from plants in its complexity. There is. So that's a great point. So we have something known as synergy. You often find in plants that it's not just a single compound, but there are helper compounds, or actually there's a suite of compounds that work together to yield the the greater activity. The challenge is that today our drug approval pathways aren't really built for these levels of complexity. They're really built for single molecules. So we have to kind of dance this fine line as a, as a government-funded lab looking for new molecules, but also trying to appreciate all the complexity and activity that's inherent in these mixtures. When antibiotics were first discovered, I get the impression that that was similar to what you're doing now. And then the the world changed a little bit when synthetic making of molecules that would serve as beneficial drugs started to be more popular. And now we've separated ourselves from the work that you're doing now, which is sort of bringing it back into focus. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. I mean, a lot of our current medicine chest was originally built on what we could consider chemical blueprints originally found in nature. So our original antibiotics are natural products. These are things that were identified from soil microbes, but we have lots of examples of drugs for cancer. So if you've ever, um, if you know of anyone that's that's had uh, treatment for breast cancer, the yew tree has provided the molecular blueprints for compounds that are used to treat that. We have uh, plants that were the source of drugs for heart disease, for malaria, for pain, the list goes on and on. Aspirin, aspirin. Aspirin, yes, and morphine, right? If you have a serious surgery, um, morphine can be really helpful. So you have aspirin, morphine. For malaria, we have artemisinin, which has uh, saved countless lives from malaria and actually resulted in the winning of the Nobel Prize in 2015 to the scientists that discovered it from a traditional Chinese medical um, remedy. And this goes back a long time, doesn't it? Centuries, even thousands of years. Absolutely. Some of these systems of medicine go back, you know, several millennia. And what I think is very striking is that no matter where you go in the world today, wherever humans have lived, there's always been a body of knowledge of how to use the resources around them, the plants and fungi and other natural resources, to heal. We see this over and over. And also animals self-heal. There's evidence showing that not only do primates medicate with plants um, to treat things like um, parasitic infections, but there are also there's also emerging evidence around birds doing the same thing and even butterflies. Mm. So this practice of using nature as a source of medicine is something that's not only a human trait, it really expands further into the animal kingdom. So how do you guard against, uh, this is almost a devil's advocate kind of question, 
How do you guard against the super belief in herbs, for instance, that covers oh. everything? For instance, I, I heard a story about it, somebody going to an herb store once and said, well, what, what's in that box? What does that do? Well, that, that cures malaria. What's in that box? That, that cures a bad stomach. What about that box over there? Oh, that's to ward off lightning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it sounds a little problematic if, unless you're really into testing these things for what they're supposed to be for. That's a great point. You know, a lot of the plants that I work on are considered to be magical plants or plants that have a history in kind of witchcraft. And I really like witchy plants. I like plants that mm-hmm. have this history of mysticism tied to them because what is a plant that has some mystical you know, characteristic assigned to it, that's usually a plant that has really interesting chemistry. So I think what we do in my research group that's really unique and and kind of helps to build on that foundation of herbal, of herbal you know, uh, gratitude for herbs is really putting the science behind that. So if you have in one culture that, you know, here I'll, I give this plant to treat a disease of the spirit, Well, when I think about spiritual diseases, what I'm also thinking about things that people don't see, like microbes, right? Mm. Um, And so you have to really read between the lines when you're interpreting some of the ways that these are talked about um, within their specific cultural context. But there's also a lot of stuff that's also absolute nonsense in, in, in the field when it comes to herbs. I mean, especially because you can make so much money off of creating herbal products and marketing it for, you know, everything under the moon. Um, so I think we have to be really careful as consumers to really read about the herbs that you're interested in taking. And honestly, I advise people just to start with things that are simple. Like if you have a balcony or a small garden, you know, there are many different types of mint plants that are very easy to grow and make wonderful teas. And they do help soothe the stomach um, and are very mild. There are other plants, though, that will definitely kill you if you make a tea of them. So you have to really be informed. That's one of the things that worries me is people getting interested in herbs, hearing a little bit about it, mm-hmm. and then self-medicating themselves with something that may be good under certain circumstances and not good under others, or the wrong dosage, all kinds of things that only you know because you've studied it. And this is where I think science communication can play a really important role. I'll, I'll give you an example of something that happened during COVID. There are actually two different things that happened. Number one is there was, you know, an internet uh, uh, rumor or, or basically marketing towards using um, quinine as a, as a treatment for COVID. And we saw upticks in people mm. um, ordering cinchona bark and trying to make high, you know, these kind of high dose quinine treatments to self medicate. And this has a number of safety issues that can, you know, be seen with that. You can develop synchronism, which is a chronic ringing of the ears. There are toxicities with some of these plants. And so, working with some other scientists based in the in the um, UK, we wrote an op ed about this to really try and educate the people. I did something similar. 
um, when all the buzz came out about Oleander. My fear was that people were going to read about Oleander as a solution for COVID and basically make teas out of Oleander because it grows all over California. I mean, it's it's used as a decorative plant. Yeah, but but it's it's poisonous, isn't it? It's very poisonous. It's extremely poisonous. It can cause serious heart um, heart problems and and even result in death. Right. So. Hmm. There's a lot of misinformation that was being spread during this period. And so because people say, oh, it's a plant, it's natural. No, yeah. it's not always safe. And you can't always trust what's shared on, on, on different social media platforms as being reliable therapies. Social media platforms <laughs> can be poisonous. Yes. When we come back from our break, Cassandra Quave tells me how ethnobotanists like her are in a race against time, not only to find medicinal plants, but also to learn from the native cultures that understand how to use them. Both are under threat. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Cassandra Quaid. Personally, I was really struck by one sentence in the book. The bacterium that nearly ended my life, you said, is the same one that the blackberry extract I've studied in my lab has proven effective in fighting. Two things about that. Amazing that you went through that infection and had years of surgeries. And here was an extract that you could have used to, to fight it. And the other thing that strikes me about it is that it's a blackberry. Is it an ordinary <laughs> blackberry? Yeah. So it's actually a blackberry that grows in the Mediterranean. But we've found that other blackberries have similar properties because they have similar chemistries. It's an interesting discovery story. From this, I was doing my PhD research in southern Italy, interviewing people 
about the plants they put on their skin to treat things like boils and abscesses and infections. I mean, so many fun conversations about oozing skin, right? <laughs> and, and the blackberry was one of the plants that, that people told me about, that they would take the leaves of the plant combined with some pork fat and apply that topically to heal these kind of skin infections, these kind of abscesses. And so we all, I collected not only the leaves, but also the roots and other parts of the plant. And we found that both the leaves had activity, but the roots had even more so because they had a heavier concentration of those active chemicals. And what these did was that they actually stopped the bacteria from attaching to surfaces. So bacteria like to survive in these environments known as biofilms. So if you can imagine like a little mushroom forest and they're in these little towers and when they're in these towers, so one bacteria stacked on top of each other, they slow down their growth. So that means that that antibiotics, which work on rapidly dividing cells, don't work as well against them. And they're just really hard to get rid of, right? And so what this blackberry um, extract could do is it, it stopped that sticky process that's important in, in skin wounds in, in, in particular. What about microbes that have antibiotic resistance? It's a growing problem. It, it, we're going to be in big trouble. So many people die every year already, and it's getting worse. So how is the work you're doing confronting that problem? Yeah, that's a great question. Just to put some numbers out there, we have around 700,000 deaths that were estimated to have happened globally due to untreatable antibiotic-resistant infections in 2016, that number has now reached 1.29 million that occurred in 2019. And the estimates show that we're going to reach 10 million deaths per year due to these types of infections by mid-century. So all over a, the world. All over the world. And so it's a really serious problem. And it's, it's hard to nail it down because there's so many different types of bacteria that are causing this. It's not just one species of bacteria that's causing all the problems. There are multiple species, but really, they're just really incredibly good at overcoming things that we throw at them, right? So what we're doing in my work is not only looking for new antibiotics because it's also important to note that the last new antibiotic that was brought to market was discovered in 1984, okay? Um, that's before most of the students I teach here were ever born. <laughs> and um, we need new scaffolds, new chemical blueprints to treat these infections. So that's one thing that we're doing is we're looking for those new chemical blueprints in the remedies that people have used for centuries to treat their infections, the other thing we're looking for are compounds that stop the bacteria from sticking to surfaces like the blackberry bush, because that might be something we could use in combination with an antibiotic, make that antibiotic work better. We are also looking for compounds that block the ability of these resistant bacteria from causing damage to our tissues. So some bacteria, including staph, which nearly killed me, um, are very good at producing a suite of toxins. So these toxins can burst open red blood cells. They can destroy our tissues. They're what really um, allow the bacteria to grow in the size of the infection and also spread through our body. So we've already identified some molecules from medicinal plants that are used for the treatment of infections in traditional medicine. We've identified molecules that can stop that process. So instead of killing the bacteria, we basically disarm them. And so that's another approach. So we're really trying to look at this from many different angles. Like, yes, let's find new classic antibiotics, but let's also try and make them weaker, make them less able to stick, and also try and knock out their toxin systems.
And I get the impression that you search for the plants in hot spots of diversity. Absolutely. Yeah. So we work in global biodiversity hotspots. So a couple of things about these hotspots, they have to have at least 1,500 endemic species. That means that there are 1,500 types of plants that are only found in that one part of the world. Okay. And then they also have to be under threat because um, at least 70% of the native vegetation under threat or is already lost due to human expansion. Is it mainly expansion, the more people uh, floating into the area, or are there other effects from climate change? It's all of the above. We have human population expansion. We have conversion of more and more land for agriculture and and pastoral use, so cattle grazing, growing lots of soy, corn, grains. You have um, challenges due to climate change. So yes, all of the above are putting those under threat. So we're really in a race to try and not only document what remaining knowledge there is among the people that learned how to use these plants as medicines, but also collect the plants themselves um, and study them before we lose them forever. So something that I didn't consider before you wrote it in your book is that we're not only in danger of losing the hotspots of diversity where you can find these valuable plants, we're losing the languages of the people as people more industrialized people move in with a different language. We lose the language and therefore the body of knowledge that the local medicine men and women have to offer around the subject of the plants so that we not only know that they're supposed to be good for something, but we know how to, how to use them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you think about this, the languages hold libraries worth of knowledge. It's the knowledge of their 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 culture, their their music, their traditions, and also their medicines. And so language conservation is incredibly important. I'll give you an example from the work that I talk about in Italy with the Arboresh. The Arboresh are an ethnic minority group that migrated to Italy um, five centuries ago. And one of the villages where I, I first started my, doing my work in Italy was an Arboresh community. I met my husband in that village. His father spoke and understood Arbresh, but not very didn't speak it very often. His grandfather and, and grandmother spoke it fluently. My husband, who's that third generation down, can recognize a few words. I probably know more words than he does at this point because <laughs> I studied it so intensely when I was there. And our children speak none of it. So I can see in my own life, how in my own family tree through my marriage, how a language is lost and what that means. And in the Arboresh village that you visited, was there a kind of medicine man who was using plants in an unusual way? Yeah, so there were medicine women in this case, ah. um, many different medicine women. These healers that would use a combination of traditions from, from kind of Catholic tradition, a lot of Catholic prayers and a lot of plants. So this was not something that was necessarily... Uh, approved of by the church, but it, they integrated their religion with um, the use of plants to treat a number of interesting diseases, including a lot of spiritual ailments as well. So this is making me wonder all the more about the acceptance on the part of the medical profession and the general public. If they hear that you not only have to take this plant extract to get better, you also have to turn around three times and spit over the knife. <laughs> we, 
we don't necessarily do that in the lab. But, you know, I, I think there are some nuggets of wisdom that can be taken um, from traditional healing ceremonies. I think many of us would agree it'd be nicer to not feel so rushed when you're in talking with your doctor. I think that time of, of just having someone really work with you and, and figure out what's going on with you, having that, that, that time with your care provider could be something useful. Um, but I also, I mean, I'm, I'm a associate professor in a, a leading medical school. I'm in the Department of Dermatology. I'm probably the only ethnobotanist in the world that's in a dermatology department. Um, but I work with fabulous colleagues across the field, and I think there's recognition of the origin stories of many of our medicines. And this is something that's not necessarily always taught in medical school, where drugs were first discovered. But that's one of my goals with this book is to raise awareness that actually a lot of these medicines that we may buy today at the pharmacy were originally from nature. And guess what? Those plants that were, you know, the source of of those drugs um, were being used in different cultures, sometimes on the mix between spiritual and natural therapies. But in the end, the the active ingredients were pulled out and developed into drugs. Get the impression that what is referred to as a spiritual malady by a medicine woman or medicine man may in in fact be what we would call depression or anxiety. It could be. I think you're right. I think in some some cultures, there's just different ways of labeling disease. Health and illness are viewed through very different lenses um, from culture to culture. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from that and how to improve Western medicine. I've got the impression from reading your book and from looking at YouTube videos of you out in the field that you're very active in mentoring students, mentoring younger people. Is that something you consciously put as part of your life into? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what makes this job worth doing for me of of being a professor is that chance to work with students and kind of inspire the next generation. I'm really passionate, too, about mentoring not only students that work in my lab or in the herbarium here in Atlanta, but also the students I encounter abroad. I'm actually jumping on a plane tonight for Egypt where I'll be um, going to Cairo and working with uh, students at a university in Cairo called Heliopolis. And we'll be taking them out in the field. They're going to be taking part in this expedition. I'll be training them in how to collect plants and how to document records of their own cultural heritage when it comes to plants. So I think I'm a really big believer in empowering and building capacity among students in the next generation because, as I said, we are losing not only plants but also knowledge of plants through knowledge loss and language loss across the globe. And so we need to really build, I guess, an army of scientists. So that's what I'm trying to do through mentorship. (laughs) That's great. When you're ever out in the field with students, do they ever have the glorious feeling of finding a plant that has remarkable powers. Yes, yes. It's it's funny, you know, when we first start off doing research, when students have never been in the field, everything looks like just a carpet of green. And then day by day, they start recognizing things. And then they get really excited when we find something that's on our list that, you know, they've been hunting for and you hear a kind of, you hear kind of a squeal in the in the distance <laughs> and then over comes on the on the on the you know on the radio is like, I found it, Dr. Quave, come, come, come. I love those moments. <laughs> I love those moments. It's like it's like a treasure hunt and it's just great to see them excited like that. On the subject of communication, 
which we're interested in a lot on this show. Your book is a great example of communication skills. How much is that conscious on your part? Do you, do, how much have you broken down the elements of communication for yourself? Yeah, I became passionate about science communication when I was still a graduate student. You know, this is in the early days of YouTube. And when you used to Google ethnobotany on YouTube, it was all videos on how to get high, <laughs> how to <laughs> look at psychedelics. There was no real information about the field of ethnobotany and the value that plants have to our health and to our medical systems and to our food systems. And so it was from that moment that I really started creating content um, both on the YouTube channel and now with my podcast with Foodie Pharmacology and decided to write the book, I, I love seeing the light bulbs go off in the classroom. And so I actually learn a lot from my teaching with undergraduates. I learn a, a lot about what things click and how to better break them down. And I'm constantly revising my curriculum. I'm looking for those ways to help them understand some of these very complex notions. And I see science as being something for everyone. I want my mom and dad who are not scientists and my cousins and people that work in agriculture to be able to understand their environment, to be able to understand their health. I mean, that's something I think that's just so important that the everyday person understand what's going on in this world. We're nearing the end of our conversation in terms of time, but we always end the show with seven quick questions. Okay. Okay. First quick question. What do you wish you really understood? Oh, I wish I wish I could just look at a plant and magically see all the different chemical constituents. <laughs> I wish I had <laughs> special vision goggles to see exactly what's going on in each species because they're communicating. That would be kind of cool. I wish I could read the language of nature just like that. Okay, number two. How do you tell somebody they have their facts wrong? Oh, well, I was raised in the South, so I try and do it very politely, but firmly. <laughs> <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? The strangest question. Um, what's wrong with you? I got that a lot as a kid, which is like, just such a strange, what's wrong, what's wrong with you about my leg, which I always thought was such a weird oh, thing about to ask your a leg. kid. Yes. Oh my God. What a, what a, what a graceful question. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, what's wrong with you? Did you learn manners? You don't ask a child that. <laughs> okay. Next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, how do you stop a compulsive talker? Um, there's no easy answer for that one. <laughs> okay, let's say you're at a dinner table, sitting next to someone you never met. How do you start up a genuine conversation? I think I start it through food. Everyone has a connection to food um, and their experiences with foods. So that's a good one to start things with. Uh, like, are, are you going to eat your raspberry roots? <laughs> What do you, yeah, what do you, what do you, what do you think about this? Or have you tasted other versions of this in different places? I like to talk about travel and food. Maybe that would be it. What gives you confidence? I guess what gives me confidence is when I see the outcomes of our experiments. That gives me mm. a lot of confidence because when you have a hunch, it's exciting, but it's just a hunch, and you're going through this process. But when you see the the hard data 
that gives me confidence in what we're doing. Last question. What book changed your life? Oh, I would say The Shaman's Apprentice by Mark Plotkin, because that's the book I read as a junior in college. It kind of got this bug in my ear that I need to take off for the Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you did. (laughs) And I'm glad you wrote that book. It's both pointing us toward new medication and it gives us inspiration. It did me anyway. Oh, thank you. I thank you. Great talking with you. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Cassandra Quave is curator of the Herbarium and associate professor of dermatology and human health at Emory University. Her website is CassandraQuave.com. She hosts a podcast described as science for the food curious called Foodie Pharmacology. And the book we talked about is The Plant Hunter, A Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. This is our final episode of Clear and Vivid Season 19. Next week, I'll be back with executive producer Graham Chedd to look ahead to Season 20 and a whole new batch of fascinating guests. We're kicking off the season with an old friend, the nature writer Cy Montgomery. You'll remember her from our visit with Rudy the Giant Octopus in Season 7. This time, she'll be telling me about her love affair with hawks and her passion for turtles. And as a special treat for our Patreon subscribers, we posted on our Patreon website today a wonderful video that Graham made of Sai with her new Hulk friend, Mahood, with Mahood flying free on a snowy day in New Hampshire. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at alanalda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. 
It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.